Matamoros, Mexico, an easy driver stroll across the Rio Grande River from Brownsville, Texas, has been a popular hangout for vacation and college students since the 1930s. It's a typical border town with all that implies. Prostitution and sex shows, abundant alcohol and drugs, rampant poverty and crime. Each spring, some 250,000 students descend on Brownsville and Matamoros en masse cutting loose after finals, relishing the extra kick of sowing wild oats on foreign soil. Those who came to celebrate in March 1989 didn't know that Matamoros had logged 60 unsolved disappearances since New Year's Day. If they had known, few would have cared. One who made the scene that spring was Mark Kilroy, a pre-med junior from the University of Texas. Friends lost track of him in Matamoros in the pre-dawn hours of March 14, 1989 and reported his disappearance to police the next day. Unlike the others who had disappeared over the past 10 weeks, Kilroy was an Anglo with connections, including an uncle employed by the U.S. Customs Service. His disappearance conjured memories of the Enrique Camarena murder four years earlier, involving Mexico's sinister narco-traficantes. The heat was immediate and intense, spurred by a $15,000 reward for information leading to Kilroy's safe recovery or the arrest of his abductors. American officials kept a close eye on the case, while Matamoros police investigated 127 known criminals, a process frequently involving clubs and carbonated water laced with hot sauce sprayed into a suspect's nostrils. It was all in vain. Some of those held for questioning were fugitives and so remained in jail, but none of them had seen Mark Kilroy. None could solve the mystery. During the same time period, Mexican authorities were busy with one of their periodic anti-drug campaigns, erecting roadblocks at random and sweeping border districts for unwary smugglers. The operations were designed to leave the wealthy drug lords unscathed and to target their henchmen and runners. One of those people lower on the totem pole, and was well-known in Matamoros, was Serafin Hernandez Garcia. The 20-year-old was the nephew, a lackey, of local drug baron Elio Hernandez Rivera. On April 1, 1989, Serafin drove past a police checkpoint outside Matamoros, seemingly oblivious to uniformed officers guarding the highway. They pursued him, their quarry still seeming to ignore them, until he led them to a rundown ranch nearby. A quick search of the property revealed occult paraphernalia and traces of marijuana. Eight days later, returning in force, police arrested Serafin Hernandez and another drug dealer, David Selna Valdez. In custody, the pair seemed relaxed, even defiant. Police could not hold them. The prisoners insisted they were protected by a power over and above man's law. Still, the two remained in jail while detectives quizzed a caretaker at the ranch. The caretaker readily named other members of the Hernandez drug syndicate as frequent visitors to what was known as Rancho Santa Elena. Another one-time visitor was none other than Mark Kilroy, identified from a school photograph. In custody, Serafin Hernandez freely admitted participating in Kilroy's abduction and murder, one of many committed over the past year or so at Rancho Santa Elena. The slayings were human sacrifices, he explained, executed to secure occult protection for various drug deals. It's our religion, Hernandez explained, our voodoo. Hernandez identified the leader of the cult, El Padrino, the godfather, as Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo, a master practitioner of the African magic called Palo Mayombe. 
It was Constanzo who ordered the slayings, Hernandez explained, and El Padrino who tortured and sodomized the victims prior to killing them and harvesting their organs for his ritual cauldron. Police returned to the ranch with Hernandez in tow. He readily pointed out the cult's private graveyard and then, when asked, used a shovel to unearth the first of twelve bodies buried in a tidy row. All the victims were men. Some had been shot at close range and others hacked to death with a machete. One of the bodies was Mark Kilroy, his skull split open, his brain missing. Detectives entering a nearby shed found the cult's cast-iron kettle called a naganga, brimming with blood, animal remains, and 28 sticks, the palos of Palo Mayambe, which Costanzo's disciples said they used to communicate with spirits in the afterlife. Floating in the pot with spiders, scorpions, and other items that could scarcely be identified, they found Mark Kilroy's brain. Police knew they were looking for a madman now, a wealthy one at that, surrounded by disciples who were cunning and well-armed. The only thing they didn't know about Adolfo Costanzo was where in the world they could find him. Born in Miami on November 1, 1962, Adolfo de Jesus Costanzo was the son of a 15-year-old Cuban immigrant, the first of her eventual three children by three different fathers. When he was six months old, Delia Alora González de Valle had her son blessed by a Haitian priest of Palo Mayambe, accepting the father's judgment that her son was a chosen one and destined for great power. Adolfo was still an infant when his mother moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and while he was reputedly baptized a Catholic, serving briefly as an altar boy, the family's true faith remained a dark secret. González immersed herself in Palo Mayambe and taught her son likewise, trusting his magic education to practitioners in San Juan and nearby Haiti. In 1972, the family returned to Miami for good, Adolfo starting his full-time apprenticeship with a Haitian priest in Little Havana. His mother, for her part, was a habitual criminal, arrested 30 times on various charges ranging from trespassing to shoplifting, convicted of check fraud, grand theft, and child neglect. But the charges never seemed to stick, and she always escaped with probation, crediting the law's failure to her mystical religion. She left a string of rented houses in Miami vandalized, bloodstained, and littered with the remains of sacrificial animals. Neighbors whispered that Delia was a witch, and those who angered her were likely to find headless goats or chickens on their doorsteps. Costanzo followed in his mother's footsteps, cruising Miami gay bars in his teens, indulging in petty crime. A poor student of anything but black magic, he graduated near the bottom of his high school class and dropped out of junior college after one embarrassing semester. His interests lay elsewhere, learning the secrets of witchcraft from his mentor. Together, they robbed graves to stock the priest's cauldron and spilled blood over voodoo dolls to curse their enemies. Palo Mayambe is an amoral religion drawing no line between black and white magic, leaving each practitioner to choose his own path without prejudice. Drug dealers frequently trusted its tenants to protect their outlaw enterprise, but Costanzo's godfather had stern words of advice for his protege. Let the non-believers kill themselves with drugs, he counseled. We will profit from their foolishness. By 1976, his mother claimed, Costanzo had begun to display psychic powers, predicting future events with amazing accuracy. Months before the 1981 shooting of President Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley, Costanzo reportedly predicted the event and proclaimed that Reagan would survive his wounds. 
Costanzo didn't have as much luck for telling his own future, which included two arrests for shoplifting in 1981, one case involving the theft of a chainsaw. In early 1983, Costanzo had chosen his patron saint, pledging himself to Cariempebe, his religion's version of Satan. With his padrino's blessing, he devoted himself to the worship of evil for profit. His final initiation included ritual scarring, his mentor wielding the knife to carve mystic symbols into Costanzo's flesh. My soul is dead, he proclaimed at the climax of that ceremony. I have no god. The apprentice was ready to lead. A modeling assignment took Costanzo to Mexico City in 1983, and he spent his free time telling fortunes with tarot cards in the city's infamous Zona Rosa, a popular hangout for prostitutes. Before returning to Miami, Costanzo recruited his first Mexican disciples, including Martin Quintana Rodriguez, homosexual psychic Jorge Montes, and Omar Oria Ochoa, who had been obsessed with the occult from the age of 15. In short order, Costanzo seduced both Quintana and Orea, claiming one as his man and the other as his woman, depending on Adolfo's romantic whim of the moment. In mid-1984, Costanzo moved to Mexico City full-time, seeking what his mother referred to as New Horizons. He shared quarters with Quintana and Orea in a strange melange à trois, collecting other followers as his magic reputation spread throughout the city. It was said that Costanzo could read the future, and he also offered limpias, ritual cleansings, for those who felt enemies had cursed them. Of course, it all cost money, and Costanzo's journals, recovered after his death, document 31 regular customers, some paying up to $4,500 for a single ceremony. Costanzo established a menu for sacrificial beasts, with roosters going for $6 a head, goats for $30, boa constrictors for $450, adult zebras for $1,100, and African lion cubs listed at $3,100 each. True to the teachings of his Florida mentor, Costanzo charmed wealthy drug dealers, helping them schedule shipments and meetings on the basis of his predictions. For a price, he also offered magic that would make gangsters and their bodyguards invisible to police, bulletproof against their enemies. It was all nonsense, but smugglers drawn from Mexican peasant stock and a background of bujeria, witchcraft, were strongly inclined to believe. According to Costanzo's ledgers, one dealer in Mexico City paid him $40,000 for magical services over three years' time. At those rates, the customers demanded a show, and Costanzo recognized the folly of disappointing men who carried Uzis in their armor-plated limousines. Costanzo was well-established by mid-1985, when he and three of his disciples raided a Mexico City graveyard for human bones to start his own bloody cauldron. The rituals and air of mystery surrounding Costanzo were powerful enough to lure a cross-section of Mexican society, with his clique of followers including a physician, a real estate speculator, fashion models, and several transvestite nightclub performers. Perhaps the most peculiar aspect of Costanzo's new career was the appeal he seemed to have for high-ranking law enforcement officers. At least four members of the Federal Judicial Police joined Costanzo's cult in Mexico City. One of them, Salvador Garcia Alarson, was a commander in charge of narcotics investigation. Another, Florentino Ventura Gutierrez, retired from the Federales to head the Mexican branch of Interpol. 
In a country where bribery permeates all levels of law enforcement and federal agents sometimes serve as triggermen for drug lords, corruption is not unusual, but the devotion of Costanzo's disciples seemed to run deeper than simple greed. In or out of uniform, they worshipped Costanzo as a minor god, their living conduit to the spirit world, an ambassador to hell itself. In 1986, Ventura introduced Costanzo to the drug-dealing Calzada family, then one of Mexico's dominant narcotics cartels. Costanzo won the hard-nosed dealers over with his charm and mumbo-jumbo, profiting immensely from his contacts with the gang. By early 1987, he was able to pay $60,000 cash for a condominium in Mexico City and buy himself a fleet of luxury cars that included an $80,000 Mercedes-Benz. When not working magic for the Calzadas or other clients, Costanzo staged scams of his own, once posing as a DEA agent to rip off a Guadalajara cocaine dealer and then selling the stash through his police contacts for a cool $100,000. At some point in his odyssey, from juvenile psychic to high society wizard, Costanzo began to feed his niganga, or cauldron, with the offerings of human sacrifice. No final tally for his victims is available, but 23 ritual murders are well documented, and Mexican authorities point to a rash of unsolved mutilation slayings around Mexico City during the same time, suggesting that Costanzo's known victims may be only the tip of a malignant iceberg. In any case, his willingness to torture and kill total strangers, or even close friends, duly impressed the ruthless drug dealers who remained his foremost clients. In the course of a year's association, Costanzo came to believe that his magical powers alone were responsible for the Calzada family's continued success and survival. In April 1987, he demanded a full partnership in the syndicate and was curtly refused. On the surface, Costanzo seemed to take the rejection in stride, but his devious mind was plotting revenge. On April 30, 1987, Guillermo Calzada Sanchez and six members of his household vanished under mysterious circumstances. They were reported missing on May 1st, and police noted melted candles and other evidence of a strange religious ceremony at Calzada's office. Six more days went by before officers began fishing mutilated remains from the Zumpango River. Seven corpses were recovered in the course of a week, all bearing signs of sadistic torture. Fingers, toes, and ears removed, hearts and genitals excised, part of the spine ripped from one body, two other corpses missing their brains. The vanished parts, as it turned out, had gone to feed Costanzo's Naganga building up his strength for greater conquests yet to come. By July 1987, he already had his next targets in mind. Sara Maria Aldrete Villarreal was born on September 6, 1964, the daughter of a Matamoros electrician. She crossed the border to attend Porter High School in Brownsville, where teachers remember her as a model student and a good kid. She maintained her star pupil status in secretarial school, instructors urging her to attend a real college, but romance intervened. On Halloween Day in 1983, Aldrete married Brownsville resident Miguel Zacharias, 11 years her senior. The relationship quickly soured, and five months later they were separated, moving inexorably toward divorce. Late in 1985, Aldrete applied for and received resident alien status in the United States. Her next step was enrollment at Texas Southmost College, a two-year school in Brownsville. 
Admitted on a work-study program that deferred part of her tuition, Sarah began classes in January 1986 as a physical education major, holding down two part-time jobs as an aerobics teacher and assistant secretary in the school's athletic department. By the end of her first semester, Aldrete stood out physically and academically. Standing at six foot one, she was unusually tall for a Mexican woman, and her grades were excellent. She was one of 33 students chosen from TSC's 6,500-member student body for listing in the school's Who's Who directory for 1987-1988. Aside from grades that placed her on the honor roll, Aldrete also organized and led a booster club for TSC's soccer team, earning the school's Outstanding Physical Education Award in her spare time. With the breakup of her marriage, Aldrete had moved back home with her parents in Matamoros, constructing a special outside stairway to her second-floor room in the interest of privacy. She was home most weekends and during school vacations, looking forward to completion of her studies and the transfer to a four-year school that would bring her a PE teaching certificate. Attractive and popular with men, in 1987, she was dating Gilberto Sosa, a drug dealer associated with the powerful Hernandez family. Aldrete was driving through Matamoros on July 30, 1987, when a shiny new Mercedes cut her off in traffic, narrowly avoiding a collision. The driver was apologetic, suave, and handsome. He introduced himself as Adolfo Costanzo, a Cuban-American living in Mexico City. There was an instant chemistry between them, but Costanzo made no sexual overtures. He noted with pleasure that Aldrete's birthday was the same as his mother's. In fact, the meeting was no accident. Costanzo had been watching Gilberto Sosa, weighing his connections. The meeting with Sara Aldrete was carefully stage-managed, as was their burgeoning friendship and her gradual introduction into the occult. Two weeks after their first encounter, Costanzo met Aldrete and Sosa in Brownsville, pointedly refusing to shake Sosa's hand. Days later, an anonymous caller told Sosa that Aldrete was seeing another man. Jealous, he refused to accept her denials and broke off the relationship. She turned to Costanzo for solace, surprised when he told her he had seen the breakup coming in his tarot cards. Costanzo finally took Aldrete to bed, but their sexual union was short-lived. He made no secret of his preference for men, and Aldrete grudgingly accepted it, already hooked on the religious aspect of their relationship. By summer's end, Aldrete's TSC classmates found her dramatically changed, an overnight expert on witchcraft and magic, eager to debate the relative powers of darkness and light. In private, Costanzo called her La Madrina, the godmother of his growing cult. He probed her links to the Hernandez clan, predicting that leader Elio would soon approach her for advice about a problem. When Elio did so in November 1987, Sara introduced the dealer to El Padrino. As it happened, the Hernandez family was ripe for a takeover, torn by internal dissension and threatened by outside competitors. Using every magic trick at his disposal, Costanzo persuaded Elio and the rest that Palo Mayombe could solve all their problems. Enemies could be eliminated in the course of sacrificial rituals. Those rituals, in turn, would keep the family and its employees safe from harm. If they were faithful to Costanzo, his disciples would become invisible to the authorities and bulletproof in combat. In return, all he asked was 50% of the profits and effective control of the family. 
Costanzo's rituals became more elaborate and sadistic after he moved his cult headquarters to Rancho Santa Elena, 20 miles outside Matamoros. There, on May 28, 1988, Costanzo shot drug dealer Hector de la Fuente and a farmer named Moez Castillo. But the sacrifices didn't satisfy him. Back in Mexico City on July 16th, he supervised the torture and dismemberment of Raúl Paz Esquivel, a transvestite and former lover of cult member Jorge Montes. The gruesome remains were dumped on a public street found by children who ran shrieking to summon police. Mutilation and pain were essential to Palo Mayombe. Blood and viscera fed the naganga, manipulated with sticks as Costanzo tuned in the spirit world. The demons he served were more likely to smile on a sacrifice that died in agony. They must die screaming, El Padrino told his flock. As for the point in nearly every sacrifice where Costanzo sodomized his victims, that was simply a fringe benefit of playing God. On August 10, 1988, in reprisal for an $800,000 drug ripoff, rival narcotics dealers kidnapped Ovidio Hernandez and his two-year-old son. Costanzo's ghoul squad kidnapped a stranger two days later and tortured him to death at Rancho Santa Elena, chanting prayers for the safe release of Hernandez and son. When the hostages were released on August 13th, without a peso's ransom changing hands, Costanzo claimed full credit for the triumph. His star was rising, and Costanzo paid little attention to the suicide of his disciple Florentino Ventura in Mexico City on September 17th. Ventura also killed his wife and a friend with the same burst of gunfire. In November 1988, after 35-year-old ex-cop and cult member Jorge Valente de Fierro Gomez violated El Padrino's ban on using drugs, Costanzo made him the group's next offering to Cadi Pempe, a bloody object lesson in obedience. Competing smuggler Esquivel Rodriguez Luna was tortured to death at the ranch on Valentine's Day 1989. Two other dealers, Ruben Vela Galza and Ernesto Rivas Diaz, were added to the grisly list when they wandered into the ceremony uninvited. Nine days later, the cult kidnapped another stranger, never identified, but he put up such a fight that Costanzo ordered Elio Hernandez to shoot him without the customary rituals. On February 25th, the prowling cultists accidentally kidnapped Jose Garcia, Elio's 14-year-old cousin, slaying him before they recognized the error. By that time, Costanzo was sitting on 800 kilos of marijuana stolen from another gang, but he felt he needed one more sacrifice to guarantee safe shipment across the Rio Grande. Another ritual was staged on March 13, 1989, but the victim's suffering was insufficient for Costanzo's taste. Bring me someone I can use, he told his minions. Someone who will scream. The next morning, they brought him Mark Kilroy. Costanzo's psychic powers must have failed him in March 1989, for he was stunned by the reaction to Mark Kilroy's disappearance. Not even the Calzada family slaughter had produced such an outcry, most observers concluding the drug dealers and their lackeys were beyond protection of the law, a violent death, their just reward. Some of Costanzo's victims had never been reported missing. Three of them, later unearthed with the rest at Rancho Santa Elena, have never been identified. But Mark Kilroy was different. He came from an affluent family with political connections. More to the point, he was an Anglo-tourist whose fate threatened to become an international incident. 
Local police wanted to solve the case quickly before their tarnished reputation suffered any further damage. Costanzo, for his part, still had 800 kilos of marijuana to move across the border. To safeguard the shipment, he staged one final sacrifice at the ranch, choosing Sara Aldrete's old lover as the guest of honor. Gilberto Souza died screaming on March 28, 1989, and the dope was safely transported on April 8, despite Serafin Hernandez leading police to the ranch one week earlier. Costanzo's mules collected $300,000 for the load, while El Padrino congratulated himself on his magical powers. The protective shield of magic was lifted the next day. Four members of the Hernandez family were arrested on April 9th before they could give Costanzo the cash from his last big deal. The ranch began surrendering its buried secrets on April 11th, the butchered remains of 15 victims unearthed over the next six days. Besides the first 12 buried in the cemetery, three more were found in a nearby orchard. Costanzo went on the lam, traveling with Sara Aldrete, male lovers Martin Quintana and Omar Oria, and a Hernandez family hitman named Alvaro de Leon Valdez, El Dubi, to his friends. Miami beckoned, but informers told the DEA Costanzo might run home to mother, and the heat in Florida persuaded him to remain in Mexico City, shuttling from the home of one disciple to another. The discoveries at Matamoros were tailor-made for tabloid television circa 1989. Geraldo Rivera aired a special primetime segment on the case, while TV journalists flew in from the United States, Europe, and even Japan. Costanzo was cited as far north as Chicago, where rumors placed him in league with the Windy City Mafia. Sara Aldrete was seen lurking around schools throughout the Rio Grande Valley. Word-of-mouth reports claiming she had threatened to kidnap and murder 10 Anglo children for each of her disciples jailed in Mexico. An alternative church at Far, Texas, was burned by night riders after tales spread that its congregants were riches in thrall to Costanzo. Still, lawmen scoured the border in vain for El Padrino and his entourage, barely mollified by the April 17th arrest of gang patriarch Serafin Hernandez Rivera in Houston. Searching the house where he had been hiding, they seized weapons and cash, but found no occult paraphernalia. Costanzo and his closest aides, meanwhile, had simply disappeared. Like magic. Costanzo read betrayal in his tarot cards on April 18, 1989. He knew informers must have sold out Serafin Sr., and now he eyed his friends more warily. He kept an Uzi close at hand and rarely slept for more than a few minutes at a time. Increasingly, he threatened those around him with a power exceeding that of the police. They cannot kill you, he insisted, but I can. On April 22nd, nocturnal arsonists struck at Rancho Santa Elena, burning Costanzo's blood-stained ritual shed to the ground. The next morning, he flew into a rage, watching on television as police constructed a full-dress exorcism of the ranch, sprinkling holy water over the graves and smoldering ashes. Costanzo stormed about the small apartment where he slept with Aldrete and the others, smashing lamps and overturning furniture, a man possessed. On April 24th, police arrested cultist Jorge Montes, raiding his home three blocks from the site where the Calzada family was slaughtered in 1986. Like the others arrested before him, Montes spilled everything he knew about the cult, naming Costanzo as the mastermind and chief executioner in a string of grisly homicides. 
Three days later, Costanzo and his four remaining cohorts settled into their last hideout, an apartment house on Rio Sena in Mexico City. Aldrete, fearing for her life, penned a note on May 2nd and tossed it from a bedroom window to the street below. It read, Please call the judicial police and tell them that in this building are those that they are seeking. Tell them that a woman is being held hostage. I beg for this because what I want most is to talk. Or they're going to kill the girl. A passerby found the note moments later, read it, and kept it to himself, believing it was someone's lame attempt at humor. Upstairs, in the crowded flat, Costanzo began laying plans to flee Mexico with his hardcore disciples, perhaps starting fresh somewhere else. They'll never take me, he assured his followers. Those plans unraveled on May 6, 1989, when police arrived on Rio Sena, going door-to-door and asking questions. As luck would have it, they were searching for a missing child, a completely unrelated case. But when Costanzo glimpsed them from a window, he panicked, opening fire with his submachine gun. Within moments, 180 policemen surrounded the apartment house, returning fire in a fierce exchange that lasted some 45 minutes. Miraculously, the only person wounded was an officer struck by Costanzo's first shots. When Costanzo realized that escape was impossible, he handed his weapon to El Dubi and issued new orders. As the hitman later told police, he told me to kill him and Martin. I told him I couldn't do it, but he hit me in the face and threatened that everything would go bad for me in hell. Then he hugged Martin and I just stood in front of them and shot them with a machine gun. Constanzo and Quintana were dead when the police stormed the apartment, slumped together in a closet. Costanzo dressed in shorts, as if for a day at the beach. The three survivors, El Dubi, Orea, and Sara Aldrete, were promptly arrested and rushed off to jail. In custody, El Dubi admitted shooting Costanzo, but he cheerfully informed police, the godfather will not be dead for long. Mexican authorities were less concerned with Costanzo's impending resurrection than with making charges stick against the surviving cultists. El Dubi's case was open and shut, his confession recorded on two murder counts, but Sara Aldrete first posed as a victim, betraying herself when she protested too much, revealing intimate knowledge of the cult's bloody rituals. In the wake of the Mexico City shootout, 14 cult members were indicted on various charges, including multiple murders, weapons and narcotics violations, conspiracy and obstruction of justice. In August 1990, El Dubi was convicted of killing Costanzo and Quintana, drawing a 35-year prison term. Cultists Juan Fragosa and Jorge Montes were both convicted of Raúl Esquivez's murder and sentenced to 35 years each. Omar Orea, convicted in the same case, died of AIDS before he could be sentenced. Sara Aldrete was acquitted of Costanzo's slaying in 1990, but was sentenced to a six-year term on conviction of criminal association. La Madrina insisted that she never practiced any religion but Christian Santeria. Televised reports of the murders at Rancho Santa Elena, she said, took her completely by surprise. Jurors disagreed in 1994 when Aldrete and four male accomplices were convicted of multiple slayings at the ranch. Aldrete was sentenced to 62 years, while her cohorts, including Elio Hernandez and Serafin Jr., drew prison terms of 67 years. American authorities stand ready to prosecute Aldrete, El Dubi, and the Hernandez clan for Mark Kilroy's murder should they ever be released from custody.
But is their evil vanquished even now? A grisly list of cult-related crimes remains unsolved in Mexico. From prison, Sara Eldrete told reporters, I don't think the religion will end with us because it has a lot of people in it. They have found a temple in Monterey that isn't even related to us. It will continue. Between 1987 and 1989, police in Mexico City recorded 74 unsolved ritual murders, 14 of them involving infant victims. Costanzo's cult is suspected in at least 16 of those cases, all involving children or teenagers, but authorities lack sufficient evidence to press charges. Referring to those cases, prosecutor Guillermo Ibarra told reporters, We would like to say, yes, Costanzo did them all. And poof, all those cases are solved. And the fact is, we believe he was responsible for some of them, though we'll never prove it now. But he didn't commit all of those murders. Which means someone else did. Someone who is still out there.